welcome to Cult Movie Cult, where we watch and discuss the horrific, the obscure, and the flat-out strange from the other side of cinema. I'm Mark Dickerson. And I'm Jeremy Fink. And this is part four in our series, Cinema Slackers, where we take a psychedelic trip through some of cinema's greatest wanderers and drifters. Kick back, roll one up, and listen in. Today we'll be discussing the 1998 film, The Big Lebowski, written and directed by the Coen brothers. Where's the money, Lebowski? That rug really tied the room together, did it not? Fucking A. This guy peed on it. Donnie, please. I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. Sex, the physical act of love. Coitus. Do you like it? Is the whole world gone crazy! I like your style, dude. There's just one thing, dude. What's that? You have to use so many cuss words. The Big Lebowski, starring Jeff Bridges, follows the story of Jeffrey the Dude Lebowski, who is a middle-aged slacker who gets mistaken for another man with the same name, Jeffrey Lebowski, whose wife owes some people some money. Uh, these people, these men, come over to the dude's house, and they assault him and pee on his rug, and then leave him all alone, the dude being upset about his rug because it really tied the room together, mm -hmm. uh, goes and tries to find the big Lebowski, the real Jeffrey Lebowski, and all kinds of chaos ensues because Bunny, the wife of the big Lebowski, gets kidnapped, uh, or maybe kidnapped, and the dude ends up caught up in this whole very confusing mystery that's kind of based on the writings of Raymond Chandler, who I actually literally have the big sleep on my desk right now as we speak. Um, but th this is just a really wild movie where the plot kind of doesn't matter, but the ride is pretty fantastic. And it's really hard to not just start quoting lines when you're talking about this movie. Yes. Uh, that's all you want to do because it's so quotable. Well, this might uh, be, uh, just before we dig in here, just because yeah. this is cult movie cult, and this is probably the cult, most cultish movie we will discuss on this podcast. I was actually going to say that exact same thing yeah. because... Because one of the main factors of a cult film is rewatchability, right? Mm -hmm. So this one has it in space. I mean, you, you could watch this movie over and over. Yeah, and it does. It, it only gets better. And there's literally watch. there's literally a religion called Dudism. Yes, based on this, is. like like yeah. this movie actually kind of has uh -huh. a cult. It's it not just a cult movie. It has cult. actually right. has a cult. <laughs> You're right. Like the lifestyle of the dude is is kind of its own cult. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So um, this this film, The Big Lebowski, is set in the early '90s. A uh, time period we've been exploring a little bit already with our last couple of films we talked about in this series. Mm -hmm. uh, this is when the idea of the slacker seemed to be at the forefront. Everyone was kind of thinking about it, I guess. Uh, and uh, this is the quintessential, not only the quintessential cult film, but the quintessential slacker, I would say. Yeah. Uh, maybe the biggest slacker we've we've discussed so far. Just his, his whole philosophy on life is that he doesn't want to be involved. You yeah. know? He's basically he just, a Taoist. He just wants to flip yeah. through, and I mean, he, he's a he's a pacifist, which he brings up a lot. Mm -hmm. He doesn't want to be involved in any conflict, which is obviously doesn't work out for him because he's getting involved in all kinds of things yeah. <laughs> throughout the film. Um, yeah. So, what what did you what was your first impression going back to seeing this film again? Uh, well, this is one I've seen a lot of times, as a lot of people will. And if you haven't seen this movie, don't listen to this podcast right now. Go watch this movie. And then listen to the podcast just because we you can't even begin to yeah you gotta 
understand just, it if you haven't seen the movie. It's just, just one of those ones. It. Like we'll, we'll be talking gibberish and quoting a lot of stuff that sounds like it means nothing. Exactly. It, it, um, but so more, so, so more than usual anyway. <laughs> so so my so this I'm normally we talk about our favorite moments at the end, and there are a lot yeah. of favorite moments in this. But I think the one for me, and it's it's not even a funny moment, but just the opening of the film with the tumbleweed. I know um, there's something about that, isn't it? It's just yeah. so beautiful because it's so clever. You know, it's just it totally embodies who this yeah. character is going to be. The yeah, song like, choice is perfect. The voiceover narration. Mm-hmm. And you he's, just, he's like the wandering drifter, like a kind the, of a yeah. legend. Yeah, and it's also the idea that it's set in Los Angeles, so it's a western. Which I'm kind mm-hmm. of have this theory that every film the Coen Brothers have made yeah, is a I western. Know. You know, I I had a note here that they had dipped their toes in the western genre before this, but <laughs> I mean, yeah, they've done well. They've done full on westerns, obviously. And Since, actually, I just but, watched. Yeah. I just watched their newest film. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh, I love that uh, movie. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which grew on me more and more as I watched it. Yeah. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. Kind of of crazy and great. Um, And that's very much obviously Western. So (laughs) they've, they've done it before. And this film is very much, it's interesting because we, you mentioned last time, Jeremy, this is almost a noir. And I think it is, it's kind of a, (laughs) in the vein of a detective story, but it also has that Western element uh, where, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at a, a legend, basically someone who just kind of mm-hmm. wanders and drifts through from town to town. Um, but is also a lazy slob, which is kind of a funny juxtaposition there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have that, uh, we have the noir, uh, influence. We have just a slacker genre in general influence. And the Coen brothers are very much about genre. Um, and I think the, the juxtaposition there of how intelligent they are and the writing, how, you know, how good their scripts are, uh, with their love and, and adoration of specific genres i think is always very fascinating and you see it very much here um and actually there's a lot of parallels between this and inherent vice that Mm -hmm. i when i saw that film i you know it it made me think of this film a lot where it's a detective story but also not slacker yeah yeah, slacker and and the film is not really concerned with the actual mystery or the actual uh you know the (laughs) the motive for the for what's going on it's more just everything around it and i think that's what's unique about this well on a side note i was actually kind of almost surprised when i saw inherent vice um because i you know i love paul thomas anderson and i was almost surprised that he made that movie with the knowledge that the big lebowski already existed yeah um, i agree it's which very... I, I, yeah and i think inherent vice is great but i think that like th- i think that this movie really just nails that nails that it tone. yeah like yeah. It, like it, it did everything it needed to mm-hmm. um uh, so as you said mistake a case of mistaken identity is what sets everything off here uh so he uh the jeffrey lebowski jeffrey lebowski or the dude as he calls himself, mm-hmm. as we will <laughs> be referring to him from here on out <laughs> to avoid confusion. Out, call him, yeah, the dude. Uh, he is just kind of like we said, a wanderer, a drifter. He he goes bowling, hangs out, listens to music, and smokes jays. That's about. I mean, that's pretty much it. You Drinks know, that's, white that's, Russians. Oh, of course. Drinks white Russians, uh, Caucasians, as he calls them. Ruskies. So <laughs> that's that's his life. That's what he does. He just hangs out with you know. He hangs out with a couple people. Uh, one of them, Walter, played by. John Goodman, who I think we need to devote an entire section to because he's just so great in this film. Devote an entire podcast to. Exactly. Uh, yep. And he and uh, Steve Buscemi mm-hmm. as Donnie. Uh, the two, so the two of them are always with him at the bowling alley and they hang out a lot. But other than that, you know, he doesn't do very much. He just hangs out. And until uh, one day where our film begins, where um, people break into his house and think that they keep calling him Lebowski, which is his name, but 
he soon realizes they're referring to a different Lebowski. After, of course, they flushed his head down into the toilet and peed on his rig, on his rug. So, uh, um, and that in the rug is kind of the thing that like the running gag for the movie is I keep going back to uh, the rug, and that's really all that he cares about. The dude, he's uh, he just wants compensation for the rug because it really tied the room together. It really so, tied the room together. <laughs> so yeah, so eventually he uh, the dude meets up with the other Lebowski, or I, be- I believe he's actually summoned there. Um, he's summoned because. He, because as his character floats through everything, he wouldn't take it upon himself to to do this, uh, which is always interesting to me when you have a main character who is very passive mm-hmm. and not he, you know, he's not the one driving the plot. It's almost everything else around him. I always find that interesting. Although I will but, say, the dude is surprisingly pissy. You know, like he, he, he is. he's a I little salty. Yeah. Like there, there's a lot a of moments in this movie, yeah. you know, for someone who claims to be a pacifist, he gets pissed off. At uh, everything. He gets pissed off at everything, which is kind of, which is kind of also interesting and indicative of the time. I mean, there's, there's the clip in the opening scene when he's in the, he's in this grocery store buying milk, which he, he pays for milk. That's like a dollar with a check, which is <laughs> hilarious. Um, and so indicative of who he is. But he's watching this clip with George Bush and George, like George Bush Senior, and George Bush Senior is saying, you know, that will not stand. And and I think this the aggression will not stand. This aggression will not stand. And and I think that like Lebowski's like attitude because he he's not like for someone who is such a laid back dude, he really gets angry about everything. Mm-hmm. Not aggressively angry, but I think he kind of embodies that time a little bit where he's just annoyed by everything. Yeah, like we like we've moved. You know, we've been through the sixties. We've been through the peace love movement, but then we also got through the Cold War. The Cold War has just ended, so we're, it mm-hmm. was kind of supposed to be this time of like peace and relaxation but like mm-hmm. this guy is kind of just feeling weird and out of place and things kind of annoy him and he yeah, just well, wants to be able to have that peace and relaxation but then everything gets on his nerves the very idea of conflict is a main factor in this movie because you have the desert storm significance they, mm-hmm. they refer to it i mean that's what's going on around the time or i guess it was right before or no it was probably it was, it was right around the time yeah yeah, uh, so the war in Iraq with Saddam Hussein mm-hmm. uh, it gets brought up a lot in, in a lot of different ways, and it's very, um, I think, important to the film. At first, it seems like it, it's not, but the more you watch the film, you kind of realize how important it is to what's going on. And just like I said, that idea of conflict um, and the way that the dude is trying to avoid any conflict in his life, <laughs> it's just like, you know, th- those two things together is, is really what what the main conflict in this film is, is mm-hmm. the fact that he doesn't want the conflict. Yeah. He just wants to do his thing. He wants to do his thing, but he just can't. And <laughs> he gets annoyed by it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so the script for the big Lebowski was written around the same time as Barton Fink actually. And that was in 1991, uh, which makes a lot of sense because this film is set in the early nineties. Whereas it was made, uh, the late nineties came out in 1998 um, so they had been wanting to make it for years, and as the Coen brothers do, I, I looked into their process a little bit, and apparently they'll start writing a film, get stuck somewhere, and they'll go work on another film. And mm-hmm. then when they come back, they somehow have the solution to the their problem, and they'll finish that film. Which so, is a very Lebowski way of dealing with things. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> all right, all right, man, all right We're stuck, just go do go something else, one. and we'll yeah. come back eventually. But obviously it's been working out for Yeah, clearly. Way, so. Yeah. so they use that um, approach here. They made... Fargo, which is probably one of their best known, if not their best known film. And uh, after Fargo, they, they got, finally got to work on making this. And they, they had the cast in mind when they wrote it. Uh, and the cast is just perfect for this, by the way. I Unbelievable. Mean, you, you, can't, you can't beat this cast. Um, uh, Jeff Bridges as the dude is perfect. Uh, John Goodman, I guess we could talk about that now. He's just uh, he's playing the friend Walter. He's, he's, uh, he's actually an amalgamation of 
of different people that the Coen brothers knew, one of them being the director, John Milius, actually. Interesting. Which is, is very interesting. Yeah, because he's very um, militaristic and mm. aggressive, and he's always into something new, like how Walter's, you know, he's talking about he's devoted to the Jewish faith all of a sudden and, <laughs> yeah. you know, watching his ex-girlfriend's dog. You know, he's always, so, he's always got something going on in well, his life. And what, what's interesting with Walter to me, and I think a lot of the characters in this, is that they're these absurdist, kind of in a similar way that we were talking about with Clerks, is that the, it's all these absurdist people who on the surface seem like they're just the way they are because it's funny. But then you kind of dig a little deeper and you see the, you know, the real kind of traumas and stuff that they're dealing with. Like, you know, Walter is a veteran who can't let go of his time in the military. And that could easily be in and of itself a really sad drama. You <laughs> know? He talks about Vietnam, even though he was never in Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, he talks about it constantly. You know, it's like, he, he's, um, he's just so, he's so like, he's such like he's, a broken, he's troubled crazy. guy. I mean, yeah, Walter is insane. He He's the type of man who pulls a gun over <laughs> over the, yeah. the rules of bowling, yeah, on a friend. So yeah, he's so violent. He, you know, and he's like shouting, has everyone gone crazy? Like yeah. as he's pulling a gun on his friend over bowling. So, you know, that's the kind of character he is. So he's just very entertaining to watch. And John Goodman, as always, is, is great in the role. And he's also the perfect friend slash foil for the dude, mm -hmm. I notice. He, the way he's they explosive, interact, yeah. He, he gets under the dude's skin like no, like no one else. Yeah. Uh, which is so funny because they keep, going back to each other and they're always hanging out and you know mm -hmm. everyone also has that friend where you know they're almost annoying in a way but you kind of you, you get something out of the relationship you know and i think that the dude does get something out of being with walter and vice versa what do you think uh so steve buscemi plays the role of donnie where do you think donnie fits into that dynamic so donnie you know until i never really knew i he was always kind of a mystery to me i, I was always wondering why did why is this character even there you know because he doesn't he says very little and when he does he's told to shut up uh so i was wondering about that but then i i was looking when i was researching the movie i i noticed something that made a lot of sense and it's almost like uh the character of donnie's almost an in-joke with the coen brothers mm -hmm. because uh the previous movie before this fargo as i mentioned uh c buscemi was also in that movie and he talks a mile a minute in that one he just he's always saying something he's always blabbing away um so this was sort of a joke uh with the coen brothers when they gave him this role they they wanted him to say almost absolutely nothing and when he does he never knows what's going on and he's always being told to shut the fuck up um <laughs> uh, so that's the big is it's almost like a big joke uh in a way which makes sense but also there's something there's a sweetness to donnie and uh innocence there um which is kind of different than everything else that's going on so i think there's that um, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Just, just to have variety in the characters, yeah. I think it's important to have Donnie there. He kind of fits somewhere in the middle. I have heard a yeah. theory, which I don't think I wouldn't give weight to because there's evidence in the movie that it's not true, but a theory that Donnie is like a, uh, a, a figment of Walter's PTSD <laughs> imagination. Yeah. It's like, like I, mean, I could see that. But I could see it, but, but I think the personally, dude does he, say a couple of things. Yeah, he, the, Donnie does get ignored, unless they're both just on some wild trip. But the, <laughs> yeah. the whole movie is just a wild trip, so you, well, who the, knows? The stranger, the, the narrator, could be a, a, a hallucination yeah. as well. I that's guess. very true. Um, my, I think my favorite character, though, in this entire movie might be Maud Lebowski, played by Julianne Moore. Oh, she's um, great, too, yeah. So Ma Maud Lebowski is the daughter correct uh, yes it's hard of, to keep track of this so of the big lebowski yeah so so for anyone who's like an obsessive lebowski fan if we get any of these character relationships confused i apologize in advance there's a lot of them 
Mm-hmm. It's hard. To... Well, I think part is they want it to be confusing. Yeah, they, they they want it to be confusing, and that's the point. But she's so so Maud Lebowski is the daughter of the big Lebowski, um, mm-hmm. and then therefore also the stepdaughter of Bunny Lebowski. Strangely, which I always <laughs> found was a weird <laughs> detail. Um, but she's kind of this artist character, uh, who the, the quintessential artist, quintessential artist character, neurotic. Who, yeah, she kind of talks like uh, like Catherine Hepburn. Yeah, it, it's, it's very it's very bizarre, but I I, I just I could never quite figure out her place in the whole thing, Maud. Mm-hmm. But she just she's just so full of like life, and and Julianne Moore, admittedly, is probably my favorite actress of all time. She's so good. She's, she's so perfect. good in literally everything she everything. does. Um, Safe is one of my favorite. My yeah. Ever, so. But but she's such and there's just so many quirky characters in this and and I know the, the way we're talking about this right now we're kind of jumping around a little bit but I feel like it it's one of those movies where. you you kind of have to absorb it as the whole you can't really just take it and start at the beginning and then go to the end and only talk about it that way yeah because certain moments that happen in the last 10-15 minutes of the film inform moments that happen in the first 10 minutes of the film and 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 i think that's that's one of the reasons that it's kind of held up so well is the fact that even though it's confusing it's it's kind of just working on you the whole time and it's it's just so immersive in the way that maybe like a Fellini movie might be or a David Lynch movie. Not in that it's dark, but that they take you into this world that's kind of close to our own, but also just so totally far removed. Um, you know, it's also beautiful that it's set in Los Angeles because it's a movie that has so much to do with movies. You know, like, like I, I mean, because the first time I saw... The Big Lebowski was right when I was kind of first starting to make movies and then going back and watching it now years later, years later, having seen a lot of the old Hollywood movies and the noir films noir that this would have been influenced by. There's so many little tiny intricate details um, and so many tropes that they're playing off of, but just totally recontextualizing so many characters like you said now i'm thinking about all the different characters like you have mm-hmm. the De- jesus the jesus yeah you have the nihilist i mean you have all these you know crazy characters that are just and philip seymour hoffman playing mm-hmm. the assistant so um and as of as the plot gets more convoluted i think the film actually i mean obviously that's a goal for the coens they want it to be too much for the dude they want it to be almost too much for the audience they want it to get a little crazy and complicated and it definitely does and it only makes the the situations more ridiculous i think as it goes um so to kind of go back to the the, what the plot is i'm not going to go uh focus on it too much it's hard i just want to i just want to go so so the jumping off point is you know he so the people break in piona's rug he goes uh, is summoned to uh, a mansion where a very rich uh really very rich man who is also named jeffrey lebowski resides and i think that is like the core of it because there's a lot of um well i'll get into this later but so the the fact that this man is very successful and wealthy contrasting him with the dude um that is also another big aspect of this film and you know this guy needs his help he's asking him uh because his wife he thinks has been kidnapped and he thinks that the men who broke into the other lebowski's apartment are the ones responsible so because of this the dude gets caught up in it and involved and because he you know he, he'll get some money for it so he's like whatever man okay uh what do you what do you want me to do drop off a, a briefcase with some money in it okay you know he thinks it's going to be easy and then obviously it just it just spirals That's off from there, wrong. which the coen brothers they've done this in a couple other movies burn after reading is the first one that comes to mind mm-hmm. uh, where they, they explore that same idea of something just kind of 
a plot taking hold and just going off the rails. Yeah. And all these all these different characters getting caught up in it, and something that started out so simple gets so complicated mm-hmm. <laughs> to the point where even the characters in the film don't know what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and that's very much a display here. So that's as far as the plot goes. That's all I'm going to discuss because I think that's all you really need yeah. uh, to to get the idea of what's going yeah. on. There's something about you know porno movies being made. Yeah. There's a called, whole like, yeah. log jamming. There's a, a guy named Jackie Tree, Jackie Treehorn. <laughs> Who is maybe funding the porno movies, but is yeah. also kind of this classic noir rich man character. And that's all related to Maud Lebowski, Maud Lebowski his yeah. daughter, and it, all it's that. really all over the place. There's something about the Knudsons and a toe missing. It, it's very confusing. A toe, the missing toe is the missing very toe. <laughs> um, but but let's rather than trying to go on about the plot because I, I think ultimately yeah, I think we're done with the plot. You, well, we're going to end up nowhere. It's just going to be confusing. <laughs> What, what do you think some of the themes are in this movie? What what do you think the Coen brothers are trying to express? So there's a lot here. Um, one of the main things I was thinking about during this uh, rewatch of the film is the idea of capitalism. Mm-hmm. When he meets the other Lebowski, who's very successful, and he's just walking around his mansion, looking into the, the mirror of the, the, the man of the year of the Time magazine uh, cover that he has. Um, and a lot of their dialogue is just, you know, because the uh, the other Lebowski is always calling him a bum, and he screams at one point, "The bums will always lose." Uh, so it's almost like a commentary on a, very much the slacker, which is what we're discussing. You know what I mean? It's like the slacker versus someone whose main concern is is money and capitalism. Um, so I think that that conflict there is also a big part of it. What do you think though? Yeah, well, I think that's interesting because I think that when capitalism is discussed, um, particularly like I just read a book by Ayn Rand, um, who's kind of like the, uh, <laughs> yeah, she, she's like the capitalist and the, to the point of being a little radical individualist. And I think what's interesting here is, is capitalism to me is, is a theme, but also the idea of individualism. And I say individualism, meaning you have a lot of people who are mostly functioning for themselves. You know, if, if you look at this movie, there aren't really people doing anything for anyone else in this entire movie. You know, like, like I think that the big Lebowski mostly wants his wife back to avoid a mess, you know, and to avoid or, financial. Or when they do some, like when they do do something for someone else, they usually botch it somehow. They like botch Walter, it somehow, yeah. Walter, because Walter's ego gets involved and he starts doing something crazy, like mm-hmm. jumping out the car with shooting an Uzi. So, you know, yeah, like even when people mean well, it just always it just, it just goes face. wrong. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, so this idea of individualism was something I was thinking about um, because, you know, I mean, if you look at it, like. The dude basically just wants his rug back. It's about him. It's not really about anything else. He just kind of wants his rug back so he can chill. You know, uh, like uh, Maud Lebowski just wants a kid. You know, she just wants a kid and her money. She's not really worried about how the dude feels. The um, act of coitus. Yep. Yeah, the act of coitus. You know, the, the only people who are really seem c- concerned with other people are, are, are the people who are presented as betas. You know, so the Donnie... You know, he seems to be genuinely, he wants to know what people are talking about. He wants to be involved. He wants friends. And, you know, his fate is a grim one. The Philip Seymour Hoffman character, Brant, you know, he seems to be genuinely concerned about, mm-hmm. you know, the big Lebowski's situation. And he's always kind of put down. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what the Coen brothers are trying to say, but I think what they are trying to express is the different ways that individualism can express itself because on the one hand you have the big Lebowski you have Jackie Treehorn you have the people who are making a lot of money and maybe living in a way where they lack integrity 
Um, and, and that's how their individualism manifests itself. But then you also have people like the dude who he's just trying to do his own thing. He's just trying to be an individual, and, but he has some integrity about the way he does it, he, the way he does it. He's not going to yeah. screw people over. Even in the situation where he ends up with the briefcase and he has an opportunity to screw someone over and make some money, he has to be talked into that, um, by Walter. And the, the, the thing that gets him isn't that he can make money. It's that someone has screwed him over. So the only reason he's willing to compromise his morals is because he feels like it kind of karmic, on, yeah. on a karmic level, even th- even things out. That's interesting. Like it's a lot of the film is concerned with, like you said, individualism. Like it's it's concerned with who you want to be. Like who do you, how do you want to present yourself? Like and how do you obtain that? Like how do you stick to what you want? Like the fact that the dude is a pacifist, calls himself a pacifist, mm-hmm. but he's always getting in fights with people. I mean, sometimes even physically, he's he's driven to that. It's it's almost like that that conflict there of what you how you see yourself and but you know outside forces in the world can can change that and and can be a real challenge and i think that's what the film's about a lot and and also the coen brothers are really good at i think showing different sides of things and being almost um being almost uh voyeuristic in a way where they show you something but they're you don't know which side they're on i you know they kind of play both sides um they're good at that and i think that's at at play here with the um like i said the capitalism aspect because you have you could not have two more different characters than the big Lebowski and the dude. And, you know, their conversations just display that. And I think, um, but, but in the end, you know, what, who are the Coen brothers rooting for? We don't really know because I I think, I think there are, there's merit to both two things that both of them say and do. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I, it would be hard to say that they were, that they had like a single, or a singular message they were trying to convey. I yeah. think they're kind of they're more just like showing you different types of characters, different types of situations, and mm-hmm. letting you decide. I think. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too because the dude is someone who kind of totally lacks agency. Like everything that happens, as you mentioned, right? Everything that happens in this movie is because of something someone else does. Yeah. He really doesn't do anything in this whole movie. He's just kind of listening to what other people are mm-hmm. telling him. He's just he's just like mm-hmm. a tumbleweed rolling along. Um, mm-hmm. What is interesting? Some of the characters that I, I find interesting, just the inclusion of them, were the nihilists. There's this one group of characters which features Flea, <laughs> Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Flea, yeah. which is kind of the ultimate '90 movies cameo. <laughs> um, but yeah. I, I think they're kind of interesting because because I think this ultimately this is a movie about philosophy. Yeah, you know, yeah. and the fact that they would include that because it does present and, such a crazy world, but at the mm-hmm. same time, I think that maybe what is trying to be expressed is that this world, even though it seems so crazy, is really no crazier or more confusing than our own. It just seems that way because we expect order in movies in the same yeah. way we expect order in life, but when that order gets pulled out from under us, everything's... Mm-hmm. And so you can almost understand the nihilists who are saying, oh, you know... It's all absurd. It doesn't mean anything because when, like, if I was living in in this world that the Coen brothers have created, you know, where nothing seems to mean anything, everything leads to a dead end, I might hit a point too where I would say it's all meaningless. You know, I'm not gonna, yeah. not, I'm not gonna worry about it. You but know, still to to believe in nothing so much that you actually yeah. call yourself like a name, a, like a yeah. nihilist. Mm-hmm. That I mean, that's to me is like they're almost like showing you the comedy there of like mm-hmm. these people are like the dude but not at all because they care enough to be part of a, their own group or their own organization the dude is part of no organization he doesn't yeah. you know he doesn't want to be associated with anything uh, except maybe thing. being a, a pacifist yeah yeah but, 
So that was, yeah, I think just they show you different characters, different groups. Um, and yeah, like you said, different philosophies, uh, different individuals. Mm-hmm. What did you, because this is something we would be remiss if we didn't talk about. What did you make of the, the dream slash drug sequence? Well, they're, they're very entertaining. I yeah. don't, mm, you know, as, as to their significance, mm-hmm. I, I really, I'm not sure. I, they're very fun to watch. And I think it, it's a, it's definitely an opportunity for them to have a lot of visual flair and they do some really cool stuff with the, like the, you know, the point of view of the bowling ball going mm-hmm. down the, down the lane and things like that. Um, and the music choices are, are really well done. Um, so I enjoy them and I think they're a good, honestly, I think they're a really good break. I think, you know, from all the plot, yeah. having those little montages there, Just letting it be kind of fun. And the, the more like dreams, real like type of images. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Having that, I think it's just like, if anything for your brain is like your brain needs that kind of break to just, you know, be like, all right, I'd like to watch this yeah. for a second. Yeah. I'd like to make an interesting claim. And sure. that is the dream sequences are the most logical thing that happens in the entire movie. Okay. Like, like, to I'm, me, I'm with you. like, because, and the reason for that being is things get so off the rails in real life, but in the dream sequences, you can kind of totally just vibe with the imagery. You know what I mean? It's like, like when, when you stop trying to really figure out what it means and just say, oh, you know, this is just kind of his mind reacting to everything that's going on. Well, there- when you when you dream, it's a way for your subconscious to just process, process everything yeah. that, you've, that you've been through. So it kind of makes sense in that way. Yeah, it's yeah. processing. Like, and, and I feel like the what, what's interesting is the rest of the movie, everything that's happening outside of the dream, the dude is kind of doing the same thing. He's just trying to process a bunch of confusing stimuli. And I mm-hmm. think in the dream, the fact that it, it just lets it go abstract you know the fact like because because and i think it's it's our nature as movie viewers that we're so used to looking for meaning and we're so used to looking for logic in movies and and a through line that it can be really frustrating and crazy when that doesn't happen as it doesn't happen in the big lebowski but i think the dream sequences almost um are a relief when we see them as you mentioned because it gets so confusing at certain points that when it finally says no, like you, you're, you don't have to worry about the logic. Just enjoy the abstraction. Things yeah. start to actually click a little bit more, which is interesting because I find a lot of the time most, I mean, I've written dream sequences and as I'm sure most mm-hmm. writers have, and we've all seen them, a lot of the time dream sequences are used as a tool to abstract. They're used mm-hmm. as, as an expressive tool. But I think that in this particular case, the dream sequence is almost just saying like, hey, like calm down, just enjoy it. Yeah. Like when, it's, all, it's all okay. It's watch- just what it is. <laughs> When you watch this film, it's almost like you have to think like the dude. Yeah. Because things just happen. You just have to be like, okay, you know, go along with it. Either you're along for the ride or you're not. Um, and in terms of motivation, I mean, like you said, people are always looking for motivation or plot elements when they're watching a film. But that is very much not important here. No. Um, so you almost have to approach it like the dude would. And I think Jeff Bridges was dead on. With, He's incredible. Uh, like I said, like with his performance and mm-hmm. and reading about the behind the scenes for this one, um, when he, <laughs> as far as motivation goes, his biggest concern was um, before a scene, he would usually ask the Coen brothers, did the dude burn one on the way over? <laughs> and that was, that was pretty much, that was pretty much it. You know, that's all he had to know. That was all like all he had to yeah. go off of for the scene. And that's, that's all you need for the film. It's like, you know, you just kind of take it as it comes and, and, uh, see where it takes you yeah and i think the jeff bridges performance is is a big reason why this movie has held up so well through the years um mm-hmm. just because he's that character is just so much fun to spend time yeah. with and jeff bridges is such a master of his craft yeah. um 
But yeah, and it's one of those things where that character so easily could have mm-hmm. been a disaster, you know? And yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the, because if you didn't cast that role, yeah, if you didn't do it exactly like they did. It could um, have been such a stereotypical it, stoner. It might not have worked out. Yeah. yeah it could have just right. been a stereotypical stoner in over his head. With Jeff Bridges, there's, there's something else behind his yeah. eyes. You just know there's something else going on that makes him more interesting than than it could have been, I think. Yeah, yeah. you're right. Well, and once again, it, it doesn't seem like, as we go through the Slacker series, it doesn't seem like the dude is stupid, you know? No. He's not a stupid guy. He's just wants He's to, like... He's probably very intelligent, Yeah, actually. he just kind of wants to chill. And, you know, we all know people like this who, yeah. who are really smart but don't really have mm-hmm. any... Um, they, they, desire to get and it. yeah they don't they don't have a desire to put it into something in particular they just want to kind mm-hmm. of coast and enjoy it and have their nice conversations and hang out mm-hmm. with their friends and, and and i think that 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 intelligence that that intelligent edge that jeff bridges brought to the character really opens it up and the story the story of this film and its release not not the, not the plot but the actual story of the film itself is kind of interesting because when this came out you know it did all right at the box office it wasn't a huge hit but it didn't totally bomb either um, but it was not critically well received. Uh, a, a lot of people, I mean, going back to Kevin Smith, I, I remember hearing a quote about Kevin Smith and he was like, you know, we, I got together with a bunch of friends and we were all excited and we went to see this movie. And at the end of it, we all left kind of feeling like, oh, you know, this is the kind of movie we would make. You know, this isn't like, cause they, before that Coen brothers had done Fargo, you know, Barton yeah. Fink, Miller's Crossing. Like they had done these like blood big, simple. blood simple, like yeah. these big, intense movies and then all of a sudden they're doing this like quirky stoner comedy but it's almost like a play on what they had done before yeah in a way yeah yeah, it totally is that genre Um, the genre conventions yeah but like you said i mean it was this is a quintessential cult film because when it came out it did okay like you said but it didn't you know it didn't set the world on fire or anything but it was it was years later when people came back to it that it really it caught on and became somewhat of a, a cult thing and an actual cult thing, apparently, <laughs> for some people, they really take the the lifestyle seriously. Um, so it's very interesting, yeah, to see to see it evolve in that way. And there's Lebowski fests that go on every year, and yeah. I think some some theaters have like light nightly or weekly screenings of the film. I mean, it plays all the time. Very much a cult film. Yeah. Um, um, one thing that was I've heard this theory, and I, I I can't find right now. I'm looking it up who I could credit it to, but it was really interesting. Was that nine eleven played really closely into the reason that this movie kind of blew up. And and the idea is that that in, in a world before 9-11, a movie like this wouldn't have been as well received because we were in a time when there was kind of more order. You know, Clinton was in the White House, things were going pretty well. And yes, it was getting like a little confusing. There was the whole Monica Lewinsky scandal. But like politically, the place that our country was at, it kind of still made sense. But post 9-11, we were in a world where nothing made sense anymore. You yeah. know, when, when, so, when a tragedy of that scale happens... Like, no one knows how to react to that. It's just totally unprecedented because, you know, obviously there was Pearl Harbor, but Pearl Harbor was a military operation. You know, that was part of a war. So as tragic and as awful as it was, it, it's still it's kind of, yeah, and, and long ago people could kind of logicalize as to why it happened. Whereas 9-11, you know, that's an attack. That's not a, a, about soldiers. That's just normal people. And mm-hmm. so uh, th- that kind of coincided with Comedy Central picking up The Big Lebowski. And I remember being, you know... I remember in the early 2000s, if you turn on Comedy Central at one o'clock in the afternoon, four out of five days, The Big Lebowski would be on TV. 
and, and like this or Strangers with Candy. That was yeah, and and I don't I don't even think or Kingpin. There's a there's a there's a, bo- a bowling thing apparently. <laughs> yeah. Um. Or or just if you'd put on ESPN, it would just yeah. be bowling. But um. <laughs> but I think that the, 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 there was a certain thing like about that time that everyone was just confused. I mean, I don't I don't even think I I think I saw this movie in its entirety in little pieces on Comedy Central before yeah. I actually saw it all the way through, and because of just that constant replaying. It just mm-hmm. became so ingrained in the zeitgeist mm-hmm. in, in that way. What's interesting, though, and Mark was making this is kind of a fun little thing. Um, it's a movie that has some kind of scandalous subject matter. You know, there, there's like the scenes where they're talking about porn. There's a lot of language. And it is a movie that mostly got its life going from being played on cable. And so it was edited. And Mark, if you want to kind of speak oh. to... <laughs> All right. Yeah, we're going to do this. I think it's... Um, there's a line. So... There's a lot of, you know, there's some language in this movie. I'm not going to, if you've seen it, you, then you know. You know. And uh, so there's one scene in particular, which is to me one of the funniest uh, situations in the film where somehow through the course of events, uh, the, the dude and Walter end up at a, what is he, like 15? 15 yeah. year old. He's supposed house. to be 15. He looks a little older than 15 older, in my opinion. <laughs> like he, they end up, they show up at this kid's house with his uh, homework that they found uh, because they think that they that the kids stole the dude's car, so they show up with the kids' homework to confront him, and <laughs> basically the scene ends with Walter screaming at the kid and bashing a car that he believes to be the kid's car, but it's actually someone else's, and yeah. screaming, "This is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass," which is a great line, but it when they show it on TV, it gets changed to. This is what happens when you meet a stranger in the Alps, which is great. Yeah, which is funny. Which is funny. Very creative, yeah. creative way to get around that, I guess. But poetically, I think there's something so Big Lebowski about that. You know what <laughs> about I mean? That line, yeah. Like, like about that line, but just about the, like just just the absurdity that we even are editing yeah, content for television in that way. Yeah. Like it just like like everything. It just plays so well because it just. And, and, and such a make, ridiculous yeah. line to begin with. And, and I go back and forth on absurdist art, you know, like if you look at the Dadaists and all that, with like Duchamp putting this, which, you know, it's the second time in the course of this series where I'm bringing up Duchamp putting a toilet in an art gallery. <laughs> but, you know, I think with the people we're talking about, it only makes sense because these are mm-hmm. kind of absurdist people. Um, you know, you, you I personally go back and forth about how I feel about that because on the one hand, I love the idea. Well, it's like, oh, you know, life is absurd, art is absurd, and we should embrace it but on the other hand it's kind of like what does that accomplish you know if we're not going to try yeah well that absurdness i was going to bring this up and be i'm going to call it a spoiler but again not it's not not. but but uh speaking of absurd uh the fact that donnie ends up dying Mm -hmm. in the movie very surprisingly when it when you you first watch the movie you don't expect that to happen at all Mm -hmm. Uh, but the fact that it does it's such a random thing that happens how do you look at that is it are you, are the Coens making some sort of statement there, or does it is that just in line with the craziness that's already gone on? Or what do you I think? mean, if, for me, if the only statement is maybe at the end of the day, um, we just don't have control over things. You know, things are things if, are going to well, happen. Even when they even when they throw the ashes, the the wind blows. Yeah, it back the wind blows it back in the dude's face, which is one of the funniest parts. Yeah, like like we, I, I think that it's just this total lack of control. You know, that even even a sweet character, because Donnie, I mean, realistically, these characters are all likable in the sense that they're fun to watch. 
But like, I don't think I would actually want to be friends with anyone in this movie, except for me, <laughs> except for Maud. I would want to be friends with Maud. Maud. Is, yeah, yeah um, I would want to hang out with her. But other than that, like, I don't think I would actually want to spend time around yeah. any of these people because your life is going to end up in a total mess. But mm-hmm. Donnie is maybe the only character who you're like, you know, he seems like a decent guy. Like, he's maybe a little annoying. He asks a lot of questions. But, like, he seems like a pretty reasonable dude. Mm-hmm. And the fact that that's the one character who, at the end of the day, they choose to kill off in all mm-hmm. the craziness, you know, really, it's like you kind of have to put your hands up and you say bad things will happen to people who live their lives in a good way. Good things will happen to people who live their lives in a, you know, scandalous or controversial way. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, death is be... the great equalizer and... It's yeah, kind you of out be a of our bystander control. and something could happen. Yeah, you just exactly. It's out of our control. And it's a heart yeah. attack. It, it, it's there's no agency. Right. No one is making you know, a decision to hurt Donnie. It just I happens. actually when I watched it this time, I actually rewound it mm-hmm. because I was like, oh, because I, I figured he got shot. I forgot it was a heart attack. It's a heart attack. And yeah. I, I rewound it. I'm like, oh, actually, <laughs> they never show anything. And then yeah, they, sure enough, it's a heart attack. So it's even more random than. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's a lot, there's a lot of violence going on at the time where that happens. So, yeah, yeah I think it just goes. It comes. You know, it's in line with yeah. the randomness of the film and what the Coen brothers are exploring. So I think. Are, it does make yeah, sense. and are there any other deaths in this film? I'm trying to think. Um, I don't think there are. I don't think there are. Which is interesting because they're also playing off genres which are so notorious for violence. Yeah. You know, like I mean, like I like I love films there, noir. I've been watching a lot of them lately, and people will get too. murdered yeah. like it's nobody's business. And yeah. there, there are violent moments in this movie, but like the fact that no one dies except for Donnie, except for Donnie and it's just yeah. a heart attack. But and there's so many opportunities where they could have taken it to a place where mm-hmm. things could have become violent and dark. Yeah. But really, like at at the end of the film, all that's happened is a little bit of money's gotten passed around. Mm-hmm. One guy got his ear bitten off, and Donnie well, died of a heart attack. Someone cut off their own toe, I guess. Yeah, someone cut off their own toe. But yeah, as far as fatalities, it's yeah. it's only Donnie, and that's uh, yeah, people yeah, are relatively unscathed, you know. <laughs> yeah. Other than that, yeah. I mean, and that's another like we just talked about Clerks and the way that's pretty cyclical, mm-hmm. and it ends almost like it began, and everything is kind of the same. And I mean, that this this movie is very much like that as yeah. well. Um, it just kind of ends, you know. Yeah. Um, the dude goes back to bowling. Go, he goes back to bowling, and uh, life we, goes uh, on. And we end with the narrator talking to us, and I, I love the the narrator, uh, Sam Elliott. Sam Elliott, beautiful job. Great. And maybe I mean, and maybe that's kind of ultimately what the Coen Brothers are trying to say is, you know, it's a movie with so many philosophies at work and so much craziness. But maybe they're kind of just trying to say, you know, don't worry about it all. Because yeah, at the, the end of the day, at the end of the day, know, bowl, enjoy be... yourself, drink a White Russian, and yeah, fuck abide. Yeah. Abide, you know, the dude <laughs> abide. abides. Oh, that's yeah. I mean, that was the line that. I mean, if you're going to sum up the movie, the, the dude abide. Yeah, the dude abide. No matter what happens in the world, he's always going to be the dude. And, but, and that's, same. but that's kind of all of us, you know? Yeah. Like, exactly. we're not going to be the dude, but, you know, I'm going to be Jeremy, Mark is going to be Mark, and we can make little changes over time. Mm-hmm. But most of the, we're going to spend most of our lives bowling and doing <laughs> the things that get us through each and every day and worrying about these huge, huge existential problems ultimately probably will lead us down more of a rabbit hole than it's maybe even worth. Mm diving into <laughs> yeah i can't think of a better way to sum up this episode than that so i guess yeah. we should end there right yeah i think um, i think maybe we should just not even have an outro and just just let this one go just let it let it ring out yeah or i guess we'll, we'll do the outro we'll do the outro <laughs> <laughs> what the hell yeah. uh so yeah the dude abides thanks for listening and join us next time as we'll be discussing our mystery film and then wrapping up our series cinema slackers mm-hmm.
Thanks for listening to Cult Movie Cult. You can find us on iTunes, Podbean, and Spotify, and also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any cult films you'd like to hear us discuss on the show, please feel free to reach out to us at cultmoviecult at gmail.com. This has been Cult Movie Cult, and until next time, so long from the other side.